All right, good morning, everybody. 351, hymn 351. It is still Advent for the next seven hours. 351, one, three, and five. Creator of the stars of night, thy people's everlasting light, O Christ, Redeemer, save us all, and hear thy servants when they call. Thou camest the bridegroom of the bride, as drew the world to eventide, the spotless victim all divine, proceeding from a virgin shrine. O thou whose coming is with dread to judge the living and the dead, Preserve us from the ancient foe while still we dwell on earth below. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come and help us by your might that the sins which weigh us down may be quickly lifted by your grace and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take a look at the congregation at prayer. Verse for the week, John seven thirty-eight. Let's speak this together. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He, he who is sort of the same as saying whomever. And whomever, who, whomever does what? Believes. But the question is this, what does it mean to believe? Accept in what way? Uh, okay. See, I have sort of a hobby horse that I'm getting ready to ride. <laughs> Every week's the same, isn't it? Okay, belief. When we talk about belief in the church, belief and faith, which go together, it's, it's never the thing that I'm doing. And if you're going to talk about belief in terms of acceptance, then that's something that's here. That's an intellectual thing. It's, it's assent. I believe, why? Because I've been convinced. Uh, because I've encountered proof. And so I will accept that. I will accept that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not on the basis of the teacher told me so, but because I took two apples 
and then I added two more apples to them, and then I counted that, and that was four, and therefore, I will believe. So, we run into a problem with the church where the language that we use overlaps with the language that the world uses, but we don't mean the same thing by it. And belief and faith, all of this is part of uh, that category of vocabulary. So we can say it like this. Belief is reception. That's one way to say it. This isn't maybe the best way to say it. But when Jesus comes... Do you tell him to leave, or do you say, oh, you're here, okay, well, welcome. When Jesus shows up and knocks at your door, that's the, that's the way to understand receive. Jesus comes, Jesus gives gifts. When Jesus comes, do you let him stay, or do you work to kick him out? If you let him stay, then you really don't have to do anything because he's already there. Your choice is let Jesus do what he wants to do or kick him out and fight him. So those, those are the choices that you have. So the other way of saying this, and this is kind of synonymous with faith. This is overlapping if you were at the catechumenate yesterday, sorry. It's love. He who loves me. So to... Believe in Jesus is to love him, to receive him, to let him have his way and not fight him and try to get your own way. As the scripture has said. Now, who is saying this here in John 7? Whose words are these? Take, take a wild guess. Yeah, these are Jesus' words. Now, I could have cheated a little bit. I could have just written the whole thing in the red letters, because you know, that's how you know Jesus said it. Is if it's in red, Jesus said it. This is important that Jesus is the one who's talking here, but he says, as the scripture has said. Why is that important? That Jesus says, as the scripture has said. He's letting his authority into scripture. Yes, okay, good. He's, he's uh, giving... Uh, the scripture, the authority that it deserves. There's another answer too. There are, there are two. That's one. Uh, elaborate, please. Well, he came to uphold the law, not to. Not uphold. Fulfill. Fulfill. That's better than upholding. Upholding is status quo. Fulfilling is telos, bringing it to its natural destination. I don't want to say end, bringing it to its destination. Where does the law point? Where does it want you to go? To Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law because he's the law's destination. He's the subject. You are the object. Uh, yes. What else can you say, though, about the relationship of Jesus to the scriptures? Yes, good. That's what, I was, that's what I was really fishing for. You're right. If I were to put bullet points up, a one and a two, yours would have been two. Yeah, so sorry. I mean, two is set first loser, but, you know, 
Uh, but it's, what, it's one of the two I wanted. So, yeah, Scripture has authority, okay? And, and Jesus is even saying, well, this is what the Scriptures say. So Jesus recognizes the authority of the Scripture. But that has to be second because why does Scripture have authority? Jesus wrote it. Not because Jesus wrote it, because Jesus is it. Because Jesus is the Word. So everything in the Scripture is Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Everything is Jesus. He is the Word. When the Word of the Lord comes, when the Word of the Lord says, this is the Word of the Lord, it's not just, you have to remember this. This is one of the most important things. If I'm here for 50 years and you only remember one thing that I said in 50 years, remember this, that the Word is not a thing, it is a person. And every time you hear mention of the Word, the Word does this, the Word does that, here's the Word, there's the Word, we love the Word, this is the Word, all of that, every time you hear that, it adds new depth and new meaning to that when you consider the fact that what we're not saying is the things that are written down here are the things that God, through the Holy Spirit, whispered into the ear of an unsuspecting evangelist. What we're saying is this is the person of Jesus. So, as the Scripture has said... Why does this matter? All Scripture testifies of me. Out of his heart, that is, the one who believes, will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is really a catechumenate question. What is living water? What does that make you think of? Living water. Baptism. Baptism. Good, yes. Because, remember the Didache says, hey, if you're going to baptize, which you're supposed to do, then baptize them in living water. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why does living water flow out of your heart? Because living water was put into your heart. This is the really neat thing about this, okay? So living water is put into your heart. Where, obviously? Yeah, baptism, okay? So you're baptized, you're brought into the water, you're baptized in living water. I said uh, in catechumenate, I'll repeat it for you who aren't there, living water, most, if you're going to study the Didache and listen to academics, most of them will say, living water means baptized in a stream, water that's moving. But there's a deeper component to that too because there is living water that is not a river. Think of the pool that the angel touches. It's alive. It's living water. Why? Because it's been touched by something holy. Because the Lord is in the water. So you have living water. You're baptized into living water. And then your heart is so full of living water that it does what? Think of Psalm 23. It runneth over. Your heart cannot contain the living water that the Lord gives you. And that's precisely the point. He doesn't want it to contain it. He wants it to overflow. Because what does it mean that it's going to overflow? It's going to go out. And how does living water overflowing, pouring out of your heart, manifest itself? 
Yeah, it works. A life that is lived well. A life that is lived in belief. That is, in the love of Jesus. All right, let's speak this again. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, how can water do such great things? Catechism. But the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith who trusts the word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is, a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us generously, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Okay, I'm going to hi uh, highlight this so the kids can go. Certainly not just water, but of course there has to be some water. We're just saying, well, it's not just water. What's the thing that heals? Is it the water or is it the word when you go to the pool? What's the thing that heals? No, you can't choose, that's the point. It's a false dilemma. Never, a never answer the question if I say, is it this or is it this? It's always a trick. Okay? Don't, you should never have to choose. That's the whole point. You shouldn't have to say, oh, it's this doing it or it's this doing it, because precisely the point is that they're doing it together. It's the combination, the word and the water together. If it's just the word, it's not a baptism. If it's just the water, it's not a baptism. They have to be together. That's what does it. And uh, what does it do, Titus says? It's a water, excuse me, Paul says to Titus, it is a washing. It's like a bath. Here you go, hop in the pond, get clean. I'm going to scrub away all the bad. I'm going to get that dirt off. You know, when, when the kids are out in the summertime playing all day, and then you invite them back in for supper, you unlock the door and you let them in, and then they come, <laughs> and they eat supper, and then where do you put them? Into the tub, and then when they get out of the tub, the tub water is gray. That's how you know it's a good summer, when the kids get out of the bathtub, and the bathtub is gray, with outside dirt, okay? That's what baptism is. You go in, and the water gets dirty, but you come out clean. It's a washing, but not only does it wash, not only does it make you clean, it's also rebirth because you come out a different person than when you went in. I'm not the same anymore. Why? Because the dirt that came off was a part of me. I left it behind. Now it's, not, now it's not on me anymore. It's there. So it's a washing. It is rebirth. It is renewal. I come out and I am refreshed. Ah, what a new life. Here we go. Uh, and what does it do? Well, we become heirs. What is an heir? Uh, 
Someone who inherits. What will the heir inherit? Well, okay. But I mean, generally speaking, what does the heir inherit? Yes, everything owned by the Father. So when you translate that into theology, if you are the heir, it means everything that belongs to Jesus, because Jesus is the Son, everything that is Jesus's is also yours, because you are in Christ. In Christ is shorthand for being baptized, having been baptized. Uh, so you are now an heir, you're a son of God. This is why we don't say sons and daughters. I can say sons and daughters of God if I'm speaking colloquially. Like, hey, you are men and women and you're sons and daughters. But if we're speaking theologically, we say you are all sons. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you're all sons. Why? Because you have the sonship of Jesus. So in that sense, you don't want to be a daughter because if you're a daughter of God, you don't have an inheritance. You want to be a son because that means you've got Jesus and that means you got what Jesus got. It means if Jesus has eternal life because he is of the Father and the Father has eternal life, then you get eternal life because you're living in the inheritance that you receive. All right, kids, you can go. I have more to say for the adults. Is that also related to the creed where it says, there, that's a linguistic thing, is that when we say for us men, we mean mankind. So all man falls in Adam. We're not saying, we're not saying only men. Blessed are all of you women because none of you fell. Only the men fell. Feels like that some days. Uh, but it's, it's, the, it's the inclusive language of humanity. Yeah. I think, well, anyway, <laughs> not all opinions are worth sharing. <laughs> yeah, certainly with a hot mic. I think it's a sign of the times when you open the hymnal to the Nicene Creed and they have to put an asterisk next to and for us men and say, now what they really mean is don't get all offended, everybody. You know, I think that's a real sign of the time. Like, we're afraid that people are going to confess the Nicene Creed and be offended that the Creed says and for us men. What are we going to do next? Put an asterisk, ne an asterisk next to St. Paul? Oh, well, what he doesn't mean is this. Why don't you just teach what it does mean then? Then there's not a problem. Anyway. My opinion is, if everyone were like me, <laughs> I, say, I say this when I drive, if, if everybody drove the way I drove, well, I wouldn't ever have to worry about accidents. You know, as you make your real fast left turn at the light. Uh, back to the catechism. <laughs> so, um, not just water, but the Word of God. And where is the Word of God? Again, the Word is not just the words that are spoken. It is the person of the Word. Where is the Word? Uh, but I mean, it, I mean in, for, use the catechism language. Where is the Word? We're talking about baptism. It's not just the water. It's also the Word. Where is the Word? No, I mean in the language of the catechism. What does the catechism say? Where is the word? 
Yeah, well, in with, in and with, although in with and under is fine, uh, it means there's not a part of the water where the word isn't touching it. So that's the same thing when we say in with and under the bread and the wine. What we're really saying is there isn't even one crumb of this that Jesus isn't in 100%. Which is why I almost gave Heath Bierman a heart attack one day because he was helping his mother clean up communion and he took the paten and he went to go rinse it in the sink and dump it out and I saw him in slow motion go like this and I went no stop and he if, if, if he would jump the way he jumped then all the time he'd be a basketball star because that kid just about touched the ceiling then I felt bad because I didn't mean to scare him but the point is there are crumbs in there and every single crumb, the dust from the wafers, every grain of dust is the fullness of Jesus. So even the dust is treated with the respect that we would afford the whole host. So in, with, and under. There's, there's not a piece of it, there's not a part of it that Jesus isn't all the way in. That's what we say with the water too. There's not a, there's not a drop of that water that Jesus isn't all the way in. Okay. And uh, how do you know that he's there? This one isn't as obvious from the catechism. How do you know that Jesus is in and, in and with the water? How do you know that every drop of Jesus, or if, <laughs> that's sort of prescient, that how do you know that every drop of water is full of Jesus, all the way full. How do you know? Well, think about baptism. What happens in baptism? What do we say? In the name. How do I know that Jesus is there? Because the Lord always promises that he will put his name wherever he is, and wherever his name is, there he will be, partly, as, as much as I can fit into that little tiny space, I will fit in. You know, that's a, that's a heresy about the Incarnation. I think that's Nestorianism. That God is too big to fit into a man. So he takes sort of a God tendril and he puts a tendril into a man and then runs the man around like a finger puppet. God's really over here, but he's going, Hey, I'm Jesus. Hey, oh, I'm going to die on the cross. Oh, I'm risen. That's, that's what Nestorianism says, that God is just using a finger puppet instead of that he's all the way there. Uh, but the Lord says, wherever my name is, there I will be in full. Not as much of me as will fit, but all of me. Well, how can that be? I don't know. I don't have a degree in mysteries. I don't know. All I know is that the Lord says that's how it's going to be. And you know what? Belief, faith is saying, well, the Lord said this is how it's going to be. All right. That's how it's going to be. It's really not hard. 
the, the hardest part about that is just pushing yourself back because you say, well, no, actually, how can that be? How can water do such great things? Well, I don't really know. I don't remember a time water ever did anything great. Read the Bible sometime. So Jesus is in there, and you know he's there because the name is there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the fullness of himself. And with the name, he stamps you. He, put the t he goes into the water, and then he, the water goes on you. And Jesus goes on you because he's in the water. And you're branded in, with water. It's a beautiful thing. And what is water? Or excuse me, what is baptism? Well, you can answer with the first question and answer, well, it's not just plain water, but it is the water, blah, 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 blah. But this actually gives you two answers because right here, then it, uh, uh, with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is, oh, so what is baptism? It is a life-giving water, rich in grace and a washing of the new birth. Okay, great. Uh, life-giving water rich in grace. So when we baptize then, just like we would do with, the, with, with anything that the church does, she does it with precision, she does it with dignity, she does it with, uh, with great reverence and care. Why? Because what we do confesses what this is and what we believe about it. If this is really life-giving water, then that changes how we're going to treat it. I'm not going to play in it the same way I would jump into the swimming pool. I'll play with the water a different way because that's Jesus' water. That's life-giving water. Okay. Uh, and then we be, when, when we are baptized, we are receiving the Holy Spirit whom he pours out on us generously. That's very important. It's not just that he's going to give you the Spirit. It's that he's going to give you more, more of himself, more of the Spirit than you, than you deserve. He's going to be generous. If Jesus had a house on Halloween, his house would be the one that you would want to make sure you hit when you were trick-or-treating because he's the one who would have a big, giant bowl of full-size candies. they say, hey, take a few of those. I've got plenty more in the house. Take a few. Take a handful. That's what Jesus... Here, you want some Spirit? Well, here you go! And you say, that's more spirit than I can handle. And he says, oh, don't worry. No, you'll do just fine. That's all the spirit you need and more. Everything happens in abundance. That's another, that's another way you know that God loves you. How, how do you know God loves you? Because he does everything for you in abundance. It's never just the bare minimum. I gave you a roof over your head and food to eat and water to drink. That's all you need. God gives you so much more. He lavishes gifts upon you. He wants to spoil you. God is like, he's the father who's like a grandfather. You come to his house and he just spoils you rotten. And then he says, all right now, get on your way. <laughs> we used to go, when we would go to my grandparents' house, my grandpa, God rest his soul, my grandpa would uh, he would always give us candy. And then my dad did the worst thing you can ever do. He voiced displeasure about the candy. He said, well, you know, Dave, uh, that's awful nice of you, but, you know, I don't, I don't know that the kids really need the candy. And, you know, they're putting the wrappers in the car and, you know, well, 
And my grandpa said, oh, okay, all right, well, all right. And then it wasn't, well, kids, let's go get some candy. It was, oh, you guys are getting ready to leave? Well, oh, why don't you come with me for just a minute? We're going to take care of some business. <laughs> oh, we got business to do. And then there was the candy. And I remember my dad saying, this, this was like, this is such a, such a my dad, my dad thing. He would say, uh, oh, I can't wait for you kids. Can't wait for you to grow up and get married and have your own kids. And then they're going to come to my house and I'm going to give them cookies and I'm going to give them candy and crayons. And like, oh, yeah, take them in the car and do all this. Oh, I can't wait. Being a grandpa is going to be so much fun. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's, you know, God is so much more than you could ever want and certainly much more than what you need. It's never bare minimums with God. It's always generously, lavishly. Oh, here you go. Here you go, here you go, here you go. Okay? Um, and this is a trustworthy saying. Why? Why is this a trustworthy saying? That he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. Why is it trustworthy? Great, because Jesus said so. Does Jesus ever tell you a lie? No, Jesus has some serious street cred. So when Jesus tells you something, you can take it to the bank. Jesus says, hey, here's what's going to happen to you. It's really good for you. And you believe and you say, hey, all right, Jesus says it's good for me. Great, that's enough for me. This is a trustworthy saying. Why? Because Jesus is the one who said it. If I told you something... Well, you know, maybe you wouldn't really need to, to trust me. Like if I said, well, a 1984 Ford Bronco is probably the best off-road vehicle you could ever get. Now, you could take my word for it, but you wouldn't have to. But when Jesus says, here's baptism, here's what it's going to do for you, and it's really good for you, you can take it to the bank because Jesus doesn't tell a lie. Jesus never hurts you. All right, any questions about any of this? This is a lot of catechism today. Good. You know it all. All right, we're just going to have a little bit of fun in Bible class today uh, because, you know, we didn't have class last week, which was fine. But then today's also Christmas Eve, and uh, something seems wrong to me about showing up for, for church on Advent for Christmas Eve and then starting on the sixth commandment from the large catechism. Uh, you know, we'll do something else. So what I want to do is sort of what we did post-Easter, and that was going through, uh, the, there was the, the harmony of the resurrection, if you remember that. That's a long time ago. The harmony of the resurrection, taking all of the accounts of of each of the evangelists and then kind of putting them together and lining them up so you see, you, you get a better sense of what is happening where and why they're recording it the way that they're recording it. There's a couple things in the Christmas narrative that proves problematic for some people. Trying to match Matthew's account with Luke's account. And um, 
Most of the time, I think, when people have problems about that lining things up, well, this one says this, but this one says this, it's really just because they don't care enough to read it responsibly. That's usually the case. And again, there's always this. I've said this one before. If somebody from outside the church doesn't understand the Bible, should that be a surprise to you? No, why? Because the, church, or the Bible is a what? It's a church book. Yeah, it's a church book. So you want to be a secular guy and you want to read a church book and then complain about how you don't understand it. Well, yeah, no duh guy, because you're not in the church. You don't know how to read it. You haven't learned how to read it yet. You're just looking at words. So um, if you want a book recommendation, I would recommend, if you're super interested in this, to get a synopsis. The blue one is the better one, if you can find it. There's two. There's a red one and a blue one. I don't remember what, who publishes either one, but the blue one is the better one. Now, this one has the Greek in it, uh, but you don't have to get one with Greek. You can get one that's just English. And then what it'll do is it's typically set up into four columns, and then it has the text of the Gospels, and they're all lined up right next to each other, and then it breaks it up where they go their different ways, which basically means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share a chapter, and then the next chapter is nothing but John, because John's off doing his own thing. So to start, if, if you think about wh where everything begins, especially in terms of chronology, where does everything begin? Which of the four Gospels does it really start in? John, John chapter one. No, not well. Okay, yeah. I guess if you want to, if you want to say, in the beginning was the word. Yes. Well, sure. Okay, it really does start there. Where does Christmas start? Boy, howdy. Okay, Matthew gives the genealogy. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Luke has a genealogy too. And in fact, we're going to talk about the two genealogies. This is so fun. You, everybody skips the genealogies, but you know you should really read the genealogies. Maybe you don't know who all the names are. Maybe you don't even care. But guess what? Not all the names actually matter so much. It's why they're there and the organization of it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Matthew starts with the genealogy, but is the genealogy really the beginning of the Christmas narrative? Luke doesn't start with it, so if we want to talk, if we want to just talk straight up Jesus, Christmas narrative, incarnation, birth of Jesus. Genesis. Okay, yes, that's John one is Genesis. John's writing the new Genesis. John is the priestly gospel. His daddy was a priest. He was a priest. He grew up in the temple. He know, so his gospel is the way it is because he's basically writing the Old Testament scriptures now in light of Jesus. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> You're all very smart. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it begins with Luke. Why does it begin with Luke, do you think? What does Luke start with? What does he record? Yeah, okay. To a degree he is, because Luke's a, Luke's a physician. So if you want to really hear 
the stuff about the healing narratives. Luke's the one because Luke is going to record all the de Matthew will say, oh, well, he healed this guy. And Luke's going to say, oh, this guy was infected with blah, 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 blah. Now he'll tell you all the stuff. Um, yeah, he's, he's scientific about it. There's a, the way that he writes the gospel. Luke's not one of the apostles. So, I, I mean, you think about this. Everybody knows Epiphany, when the Magi come, what does Mary do? <coughs> Ponders. <sighs> I don't know what translation you learned. <laughs> There's a better word than ponder. Think is it the treasure? Yeah, good, treasure. Ponder is like, hmm, interesting. But treasure is, ah, yes. And then you store them away in your heart. Locking them, mm, what a treasure. Oh boy, that's a neat thought. I'm gonna hold on to that one. That's, yeah, that's like when you're reading the book and you find the quote and you say to yourself, oh boy, that's a great quote. I need to remember that one. I'm gonna lock it away so that it's always right there in my mind. I'm always gonna have that right here with me. It's gonna be at the tip of my tongue, at the tip of my brain, if you have that much control over your brain. God bless you, because I don't. Uh, I operate based on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Whatever's there is there. Uh, yeah, so she treasures those things in her heart. Well, how does Luke know that what Mary is thinking? Did you ever ask that question? How does Luke know? Is it because the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, Luke, by the way, when this happened, Mary was thinking. And that's just kind of silly. He went and he talked to people. How does Luke know anything? Because he's there. He's talking to people. Hey, Mary. And he has a good relationship with Jesus' mother. How do you know that? Because the whole darn beginning of his gospel is about her. Where's the Annunciation? Luke. Where's John the Baptist? Luke. Where's the Visitation? Luke. Where is the Christmas Eve reading? Luke. Where is she treasured these things in her heart? Luke, where is Simeon saying, a sword will pierce your heart, mother? Luke, how does Luke know so many things about Mary? Because he went and he talked to the woman, because he spent time with her, because he wrote down what she told him. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew's not writing the same things that Luke is writing. So, it begins really with Luke because Luke is the one who records the Annunciation of John who is the forerunner. the forerunner. He is the new prophet and the Annunciation to Mary right there, conception. By the way, when's the feast day of the Annunciation celebrated? Somebody who is not Carolyn. Preferably a midweek student. Do you know what the date is of the Annunciation? It's in March. March 25th. Why do we celebrate the Annunciation on March 25th? Well, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> We're going there, but there's a different reason. We're not counting backwards. So we don't, we don't celebrate the Annunciation because of Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because of the Annunciation. And why do we celebrate the Annunciation? 
because the early church believed that the day you were conceived was the same day you died. So why do we celebrate the Annunciation on March 25th? Because March 25th is the day the church said Jesus died. So then that means he has to have been conceived on that day. And when is Jesus conceived? Well, when the angel speaks the word. So then you say, well, okay, visitation or uh, uh, annunciation on the 25th. How many months does a baby stay in its mommy's tummy? Nine months. What's nine months after March 25th? December 25th. Eat it, pagans. <laughs> all right, so Luke's recording all of this. All of this. The beginning, the Annunciation. In fact, if you're looking at this book, the only thing that's here for the first pages is Luke, because Luke's the only one that does it. Look at that. There's John the Baptist. Now, there's the genealogy. Here's the fun stuff, okay? So let's look, look, we're going to look at the genealogy. We're going to look at the genealogy, which if you have your Bibles, see this is, this is where I'm ahead of you with the synopsis because I can look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3 at the same time. And who said a man couldn't multitask? <laughs> so, Abraham was, I don't know what translation this is, Some, it's an academic translation, so it's not what I would prefer, but it'll work. This is Matthew, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah, and Tamar, hmm, Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, hmm. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Something's odd about this. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? What's the odd thing about this genealogy? Ah, uh, well, okay, yes, it has, that's good. There's all the family scandals. You know about Judah and Tamar? That's one of those, that's not a Sunday school story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Tamar was promised a son, and then, uh, well, you know, they, uh, the husbands don't, yeah, the husbands don't uh, do what they're supposed to do, and she sort of gets, you know, the husband dies, and then she goes to the brother, and the, he, so it doesn't do what they're supposed to do, uh, and then she says, well, doggone it, I was promised a son, I'm going to get a son. So she dresses like a temple prostitute, and then lures her. I think it's the funniest thing when they go, There's, there hasn't been a temple prostitute. Yeah, I know. Like, That's right. Oh, There's not. 
Well, what about Tamar? Yeah, so then, you know, her father-in-law is attracted to her eyes and comes and gives her a son. I was, I taught some class when I was on Vicarage, and it was to the ladies, the ladies group. You know, not a lady in there under 68. <laughs> and I just sort of, glo I was doing something and I said, and of course, you know, we all know about Judah and Tamar. And then I sort of moved on and they kind of went, no, who's Tamar? And I was like, ah, okay, well, buckle up. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so Tamar's there. That's a family scandal. Here's the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even have a name here. Why? Well, firstly, who doesn't know who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Everybody knows who she is. That's a pretty big scandal. But why not just call her Bathsheba? This reminds everybody of exactly which Bathsheba. Nobody's going to forget what's going on. Yeah, nobody's going to forget what's going on. Well, nobody's going to forget with ba which Bathsheba. Yeah, but that's like saying, I have to say Adolf Hitler, because if I just say Adolf, nobody's going to know who I'm talking about. My grandpa used to, when they would make reservations at a restaurant, he would say, four in a high chair for Hitler. Because he would like to see people's reactions when the waitress called, four in a high chair for Hitler? <laughs> So like, there are some names that just become recognizable. Nobody names their kids Adolf anymore because you think they're going to grow up and not get into art school and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so nobody names their kids Adolf anymore. In fact, there are, I think it's maybe even illegal in Germany. There, there's something about that. My uncle lives in Germany. I remember him saying something about there are some names now in Germany that, that you are it is illegal to name your child that name because of the history of some other person who had the name. So yeah, but Bathsheba, you know, that's sort of like that. Everybody's, everybody's going to know. But, the, but you made another point, which was that nobody's going to forget. And that's the deal here. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is a huge scandal. And I don't need to say Bathsheba because my point is not to record the name of the person. My point is to record the history of the genealogy Look at this genealogy and how fraught it is with scandal. And what about Rahab? What's her scandal? Okay, yes, she's a prostitute. What else? What's the other half of her scandal? She's a Canaanite. She's not even an Israelite. Or is she? Riddle me that. Is she or is she not? Ex ex yeah, good. You're learning. New tricks. So, uh, yeah, but explain why it has to be yes. Why is she and it, she is not an Israelite? I want to make sure that if you're going to answer with the right answer, you know why it is the right answer. <laughs> I care. I care about seeing your work. Yeah, so here's the thing, all right? Rahab is by blood a Canaanite, but she is by faith 
or by promise, an Israelite, which is a really big deal. I mean, you, you can talk about justification by faith, by grace through faith, right from the genealogy of Jesus, because there's Rahab. And guess who else is there? Ruth. What's Ruth's problem? She married into it. Who is she? What is, or what is she? Where she come from? This is the fun part. Where is Ruth from? Not Israel. Moab. Yeah, she's a Moabitess. What's the deal with the Moabites? Why is that a scandal? This is another one. They don't have to say Ruth the Moabitess. Everybody knows who Ruth is. Pardon me? Lot and his daughters. That's right. Lot. Abraham's nephew and his daughters. Uh, yeah, that's another not Sunday school story. So then the entire tribe of Moab is under a divine curse. The Lord has put a word of curse onto that people. And then here you have Ruth. And Ruth is, what's the language of the story of Ruth? She meets Boaz. My brother, this is hilarious. When we were going through catechesis, we were, we were doing the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, and my brother got it mixed up, so we were, he did a term quiz, and uh, he got the, it, the, the answer was Boaz, but my brother had written Zoab. It's Zoab! <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Ruth and Boaz. What does Boaz do for Ruth? What does Boaz do for Ruth? Well, he was the overseer where she was working in the fields. Okay, yes. There's, there's more to it. What do they want? Uh, her mother is playing matchmaker. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Yeah, but what's it all about? That's all, it's all ritual. What was the, what's the purpose of all of this? It is redeem, kinsman redeemer, that I will buy her back. She's from a cursed land, but now she is of my kinsmen, so I will buy her back and I will redeem her. So she becomes an Israelite, even though she isn't one by blood, because she's redeemed. She's bought back, purchased and won. Hey, it's, that's almost a little bit like what Jesus is going to do. No kidding! It's like the evangelist had something in mind, you know? So, what's, what thing do all of those, those people have in common? Yes. You're thinking too hard, though. What do they all have in common? Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, they're all women. Wait a minute. That's right. They don't belong here. Son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. It's all about the fathers to the sons. It doesn't mean they didn't have more children or that they weren't married, but we're recording the paternal lineage. So what in the hey-ho are these women doing here? It's all to make 
a theological point about who, Jesus, who the Christ is, why he's coming from this lineage, what people are here, because it's all telling you what he's going to do and who he's for. So can you say that the Christ only comes for the Israelites? No, because he comes for the children of Abraham, and that's different. You see? Because you can be a child of Abraham, not by blood, but of promise. Which is why there's that great line, oh yeah, great, you're a child of Abraham. Big whoop. You know, if God really wanted to, he could just make a whole bunch more children of Abraham just by talking to the rocks. So good on you. That's a great accomplishment. Good for you. The sarcasm. Yes, Bill. Did you have a question? Oh, okay. But I'm sure we can come up with one. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> All right, so blah, 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 David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Rehoboam to Abijah, Abijah to Asa, Asa to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat to Joram, Joram to Uzziah, Uzziah to Jotham, Otham, Ahaz, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Manasseh, Amos, Amos, Josiah, Josiah, Jeconiah, uh, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Abiud, Eliakim, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok. There's a really great, uh, this, they use this at the coronation in England always, from Handel, Zadok the priest. Zadok the priest. Anyway, uh, Zadok. To Achim, Achim, Eliud, Eliud, Eleazar, Eleazar, Matan, Matan, father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, what's the problem with that? He's not really his dad. He's not his dad. No. Oops, somebody call Mari. <laughs> I don't watch enough, I think. Uh, yeah, so here it is. Joseph's not Jesus' daddy because he is, he is begotten by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. So you have this whole lineage, but it goes to Joseph. And there's one other important thing to note, and, you, and you'll, you'll see this. I'll start reading Matthew again, and then I'm going to switch over to Luke chapter 3, okay? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Now here is, here is uh, Luke. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchite, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias. What's the difference? Well, yeah, it's going backwards, for one. This one starts at Jesus and works its way all the way back. Matthew starts at Abraham, that doesn't seem incomplete, does it? I think there were people before Abraham. Why does he not start until Abraham? What's the deal about Abraham? All the nations of the world shall be blessed in your seed. It's covenantal. But here's the other thing. One talks about the father of the father of. The other just says the son of. Now, we are working backwards, but the language is different because father and son are different things. 
So we're going to go through here. And then if, you, if you're really paying attention, what you realize is, hey, wait a minute, the names are all different. It's a completely different genealogy. So what's the deal? And then, of course, my favorite thing here, that when you go all the way to the end of Luke's genealogy, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahaleel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth. Who is Seth? He's the child of the new life. Yes, child of the resurrection. And Seth is the son of Adam. So we go all the way back to Adam, but wait, there's more. The son of God. Adam is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. The lineage goes back to God. Now, isn't that beautiful? Different things, but why are the family trees different? Okay, I have a question. Yes. Okay, well, try me. But um, in Matthew, they talk about, he's always talking about the women, as if we put the women in the line, and the line would not necessarily go the same. If it was always the son of men, mm -hmm. that would not be the same line as putting women in if we're counting the line of the women. You're on the right track. You're on the right track. The difference in the lineage is the difference of whether they're coming from a man or whether they're coming from a woman. In particular, which man and which woman? Mary and Joseph. Here's the fun thing about Mary and Joseph. They're sort of like kissing cousins. They're both of the lineage of David. You know, they're like super, super, super distant cousins. So kissing cousins was just a joke. Uh, they're, but they're, they both trace their lineage back to David, which is kind of cool. You know that Joseph has his lineage in David for multiple reasons. One is that Matthew records it in the genealogy, but also where do they go for the census? <laughs> to Bethlehem, to the city of David. And why do they go there? Because that's where Joseph is from. Joseph is of the lineage. So they go to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's parents live. That's where the family house is. Okay. So Matthew is recording Joseph's family tree. And therefore, Jesus, as the son, supposedly, of Joseph, at the, has legal claim to the throne of David. Even if Jesus isn't the blood son, if Joseph is his guardian, and Joseph calls him his son, and Joseph adopts him, that's basically what it is, then he becomes his son, whether he is his blood or not, which means that according to Joseph's lineage, Jesus has claim to the throne. Do you get it legally? Yeah, it's his inheritance. Good. You know how to read the Bible. But then Luke records 
Mary's side. But here's the problem. It does say Jesus being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So how do we know that this is Mary's genealogy? Well, one, it's completely different. This is the blood genealogy. So it matters a little more that it goes all the way back. Plus, it's the, the blood genealogy of the blood that will save the world. So it does go back to Adam, and it does go back to God. But here's the fun thing. Did you know that in the ancient world, there were not words for brother-in-law, son-in-law, cousin, niece, nephew? Did you know that? So they don't know what any of that is. You get married, and then you have two moms and two dads, because I have my blood mom and I have my marriage mom. So what it really means is the son-in-law. We're going to use Joseph's name because we do record it with the paternal line. And because he married Mary, Mary's father is his father. That's why it gets confusing when we talk about, say, the brothers of Jesus. But then we say, but actually, the church does say that Mary never had any more children. And if you really want to be a good Lutheran and do what the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, tells you, then you say Mary didn't have any children. Because guess what? That's in the book. Well, but it says the brothers and sisters of Jesus, doesn't it? Well, absolutely it does. But there isn't a word for cousin. So anybody that is a family member who is a boy is a brother or a father or a son. Anybody who is a family member who is a woman is a mother or a sister or a daughter. Because that's it. Close ties in the family. So here we have the line of Mary, which is the blood. But Mary's also from David, which means the child that she bears, even though he has no blood inheritance to the throne of David, through his father, does have it through his mother. And here's the lineage. All right, any questions about that? We did not get as much done as I hoped. But what's new? Questions? Joseph's family is from Bethlehem. Yes. Why did some of his relatives say, hey, Joseph, you can come over here and stay with us? Well, that's a... It's a translation error. That it says there's no room in the inn isn't actually what the text says, but that's what King James said, so everybody uses that. What, what is really meant is there's no room for them in the guest bedroom. And a better translation would be not that there's no room for them to stay, but that this is not an appropriate place for her to give birth because the house is open and everybody's going to be around there and this woman is going to be, you know, given birth. That's... You know, we don't want to see that. unless you're the husband, you really don't have any business being in the room when that's happening. So that's really what's being said. And then they go down into the lower part of the house, which is where the animals go, which is where the cave is that then she gives birth and puts him in the manger because that's the, like, the basement where the animals live. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah, and there's a custom, you know, well, anyway, the, the, yeah, we got to go to church. We got to go to church.